ahead and get started. We're in Psalms 110. We'll do prayer requests at the end of the service again. I did find out one thing last week. I got told by Miss Liz, please quit moving around so much so she couldn't hear the podcast well. So, uh, so I'm not going to be, I'm going to try my best not to move as much tonight, uh, which is not very easy, especially since I've been sitting here five minutes, done lost my pen. But uh, Psalms 110. Yeah, well, I kind of got used to doing that on Sunday because when we've been filming it on Sunday, it's just been just, you guess what, just a handful of us here. Uh, and we, we brought the camera close up so it would be easier to do. And, I, and so I got the habit of standing up there. That also because I do the podcast with my phone. And it's microphone's not the greatest, but it's actually a pretty good microphone to pick up. So uh, to, to do those right there, to, to, for that was one of the reasons. But it's still not easy for me to keep still. Uh, I, I kind of got a little bit better when I was at home doing some of the podcast on Wednesday nights because I would do it at my desk. And and really not a lot of room to move around in my study. So I'll try my best tonight. Psalms 110 is it's entitled, it has one title on it, it's called A Psalm of David. But what's funny is a lot of people try have tried their best commentaries and, and, and commentators to try to deny David's authorship of the psalm. Uh, and I think there's reasons behind it which we'll get into as we study it. And a lot of it's just, I think, so many of them, it's amazing. People who are Bible commentators try to take God out of the Scripture. And if they can get a little bit of doubt as to who authored something or something like that, then that casts shadows of doubt all throughout the Scriptures. And I think that's one of the reasons why they do it. Uh, now, David, Derek Kinder noted, he said, Our Lord gave full weight to David's authorship. And, and he says this in himself in, in Mark chapter 12 verse 36 it says for David himself by the Holy Ghost the Lord said to my Lord sit thou at my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool so I think that ought to if, if you believe that the Bible if in any way is the word of God and you believe that the, the, the gospels are Jesus's words then if Jesus said it then I ought to not take any doubt of who the author is he said David said. So that, that should be the, the, the whole point right there. Now the subject of, of this psalm is, is the priest king. And, and none of the kings of Israel united or, or separate, you know, had this, these offices. None of them were priest and king. They were always just the, the king. Uh, though the, some, tried, some tried to do it, though they didn't quite get a... Get a good job of it you know David performed some acts that kind of verged on being a priest if you remember when we were studying his life some of the things that he did well he would offer sacrifices he would do different things but he was he was not from the tribe of Judah because of my you know he was he was not excuse me he was not a Levite but he was from the uh, from the tribe of Judah and he was not uh, of the lineage to be able to do it so the priest king here spoken to by David is the Lord is, is a mysterious person. He gets into uh, somebody who we've, we've talked about before, Melchizedek. And so we're going to talk a little bit about Melchizedek tonight. Uh, you know, he, he, was a, he was at one of the few that actually did this. He was a king and he was also a high priest. We'll see that tonight as we do a little bit of studying. So we, we see that... that the reason why he puts this behind, and we also know the New Testament tells us a lot about Melchizedek too. Now, the remarkable thing about this one psalm is that portions of it are quoted in the New Testament. This is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament there is. And, I mean, it's quoted uh, 27 times in the New Testament. And it's only seven verses long so that's pretty awesome so it, it, it's a very important psalm you know and, and so we, we we see that so let's look at it we're gonna look at the first couple of verses and we're gonna look at the, the first thing is the the character of the messiah here verses one and two talk about him being appointed and honored by 
by the Lord. It says, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion and rule in, rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. So if we look, the word enemies here, which is used twice, is the same word in, its, in the, the original Hebrew. It was oib, O-Y-E-B. And it means an adversary. So he's talking about his enemies, talking about his adversaries. And he says that, that he's going to make them the, you know, the a footstool. And the word there is hadam, and it actually means stool. So when he says that, you know, it was it was something that actually was talking about. So the Lord said unto David, he said prophetically, basically where he says, the Lord said unto my Lord David, prophetically reveals the word of Yahweh or the Lord to the Messiah. David's Lord. So David's not talking about himself because David's enemies never really truly became his footstool. He he conquered a lot and he was a warrior king, but he still had enemies. So not all of his enemies became his footstool. So this is not talking to him. We we realize that this is is a verse basically and, and it's quoted, like I said, in the New Testament many different ways. It's a prophetic verse. It it's one of those partially uh, partially uh, fulfilled, but not yet fulfilled verses. Psalms has a lot of those. In the Old Testament does in a lot of the, the prophetic verses, there are things that were partially fulfilled and not fulfilled. So this is one of them. So the, the verse here in the Psalm is one of the Old Testament's most, this one here is the most quoted verse. This first one where he's going to make them the footstool. Jesus quotes it in Matthew 22, uh, 23, I mean, 22, 43 through 45. Also in Mark 12, 35 through 37. And it shows how David called the Messiah Lord, recognizing the Messiah was greater than David himself. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 22. He said, He said unto them, How doth David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Thou shalt sit on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David called him Lord, how is he his son? Now, one thing important, too, if you look, both lords are what? When capitalized. So that actually means God. So, he, he, you know, God's basically saying to God this. And so we know that he's talking to the Messiah. The, the words are there. In, in Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 37, Jesus said, Jesus has answered and said, While he taught in the temple, how say the scribes that Christ is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Ghost, said the Lord to my Lord, sit thou at my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. David therefore called himself Lord, whence then he is his son. And common people heard him gladly. So what Jesus was trying to say, if this was what David was saying, David called himself his own son. Now notice what the, the scripture says. It says that sit where? At his right hand. Where is Christ today? At the right hand, waiting until you know the till when he comes to rule. So basically, and that's when the the enemies will be set at at his footstool. Peter said in, on Pentecost, as he quoted it, he explained how David prophesied the deity and ascension of Christ in Acts chapter two, verses thirty four through thirty five. David um, Peter said this: For David is not ascended unto the heavens, but he has said himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. So he said, David's not sitting in heaven at the right hand of God, is he? So it can't be David. And so, you know, Paul refers to the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15, 25, explaining the rule of dominion of Jesus the Messiah. He said, For he must reign till he had put all enemies under his feet explaining the rule and dominion of the Messiah. So we see it quoted time after time, that same verse. Jesus quotes it, Peter quotes it, Paul quotes it. And, and who are they talking about? He's talking about Jesus. Uh, the, you know, when you think about the dominion of Christ, uh, Hebrews chapter one, verse 13 refers to the, the superiority of Jesus, the Messiah, over the angels. He says this, using the same verse. It says, but to which the angels said he at any time, 
Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. So basically they take this verse and they're trying to, to prove that it's Jesus. They apply it. Couldn't be David because David's not there. Can't be another angel because he's never said that to an angel. So it has to be the son. It has to be the Messiah. And so he kind of gives them that. Hebrews 10, 13 says, From henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. Constantly, like I said, it's over and over. Spurgeon said this. He said, How consenting on Jehovah's part to permit a mortal ear to hear and a human pen to record his secret converse with his co-equal son. How greatly should we prize the revelation of his private solemn discourse with the son herein made public for the refreshing of his people. So Spurgeon said this was was God talking to, to Jesus, but being able to be recorded and wrote down. And, and think how long did David live before Jesus came? You know, a couple thousand years there. So we, we, we see that here it is, God let it be made, made known. The Lord said to his Lord, it says the fact that, that the Lord, the covenant God of Israel, spoke to David himself and called himself Lord, Adonai, demonstrates that both the Lord and Adonai mentioned are in this verse God. So as we get to it, like I said, this, this is a, a repeat over and over. A lot of them are trying to show that the, who the, the, the verse was about. You know, uh, you think about how the lordship of God is showed here, or the lordship of Jesus is showed here, because who, in, if you had a king, and the king ruled, the one, the, the, to sit at the right hand of the, the king was a very special place. It was for the one who was to rule. And so you've got God the Father, and you've got God the Son, just like you'd have the, the king and his firstborn son. That's, so it's a picture that people could understand. So to, to say this, could you imagine, though, the Jews who did not believe that Jesus at that time was the Messiah, when he makes this claim, when he quotes this verse, could you imagine what they're thinking? You're saying that you are the Messiah. You're saying you are equal to God. You, you think about how, what, what was the one thing when they got ready to, to cr crucify Christ that they, they said was the biggest crime that he did? Blasphemy. He did it right here when he quoted this verse. And, and so they, 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 they didn't you know, get too upset at this time when he's explaining these things. But you know they, they do later. And I, I think they, they held this verse against them. Spurgeon said this, he said, to sit at my right hand, talking about it, he said, his work is done that he may sit, it is well done. He may sit at his right hand, and it will have grand results, that he may therefore quietly wait to see the complete victory, which is certain to follow. So when Christ sat down at the right hand of the Father, what did he do? Why did he go, why did he sit down? He was finished. When he, when he said that on the cross, when he said, it is finished, and he took his last breath, and he, he died, when he rose again and he ascended into heaven, everything was done. It was finished. What was the last thing that he conquered before he ascended into heaven? Death. He conquered death. So everything is finished. He's sitting there victorious. Waiting for the Father to do what? To send him back to get the church. And then after that, you know, he'll, he'll rule for a thousand years. So he, we see how he's done it. Christ is sitting down at the right hand of the Father. He's waiting until the Father tells him to finish, to, to go do what's left. But everything else is finished. Poole said this about the part about the footstool. He said, the slaves and vassals to be put under the meanest and basest service as a phrase implies being taken from the manner of Eastern princes who used to tread upon the necks of their conquered enemies as we read in Joshua 10, 24. Listen to Joshua 10, 24. It said, it came to pass 
when they brought out those kings under Joshua, that Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said unto the captains of the men of war which went with him, Come near and put your foot upon the necks of these kings. And they came near and put their feet upon the necks of them. So when you were conquered by another king, what they did was they humiliated you. They made you lay down and basically at their feet and they'd put their foot on their neck. Some of the, the ancient kings had a, uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar did this, he would actually get the people, the kings that he conquered, they'd cut their thumbs off of them and a lot of times cut their ears off of them and then they became exactly what it says, footstools. He'd make them stand there and he'd sit on top of them. He'd put his chair on top of them. So people could understand when David penned this, what he was talking about. You were completely conquered by the ruling king. And so here the father is saying, son, sit down in my right hand because everybody's been defeated. Everything's been defeated. Until I make all your enemies your footstool, you're to sit down. When you when Satan's defeated, you'll sit down. You can get up then because you'll be ruling. So Joshua gives us the idea, shows us what it's kind of about. He said, the Lord shall send, he said, listen to what he says. He says, the Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion and rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. So once you've sat down and I've conquered and you've conquered everybody, everybody's made your footstool, you're going to rule. Now, when Christ comes back during the millennial reign and he rules for a thousand years, where will he rule from? From Jerusalem, the, the seat of David. So you, you think about it. David died. And when he died, he died kind of, uh, uh, he really what, I guess you could say it was an old age. We'd look at it today and say, he died really young. But at that time, it was a fairly old age. And if you remember, he died, he couldn't get warm anymore. Uh, he, David, who had been a hot-blooded individual in his youth, he was a warrior, he didn't do it to the extent that his son did. He chased after women. You think about it, most of David's sin was caused because of his hot-bloodedness, because of the, the things that he wanted, his passion. What was David? one of David's main sins? Adultery. You know, that's a sin of passion. Not only that, but the other sins he did when he numbered the people. It was a sin of passion because he wanted to show how strong he was. Every one of them were, were sins like that. So towards the end of his life when he lost his heat, he didn't have it. So he, he didn't have all of his enemies conquered. He lost some of them that way. Adam Clark said this, he said, Adam Clark was among those who thought that the rod of his strength represents the gospel. The gospel, the doctrine of Christ crucified, which is the powerful scepter of the Lord that brought us is a quick and powerful, sharper than two and yet than any two-edged sword is the power of God unto salvation to all them that believe. So when you read that part about he shall send the rod of his strength out of Zion, you think about this, when Christ died and he rose again on the third day, what conquered the world? After that, did Christ come back to rule then? He sent out these disciples to share the gospel. You ever thought about the, the, the what they shared? They went, the, the biggest thing they talked about was that he rose again on the third day. The, 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 the resurrection of Christ was the main part of the gospel to start with. Everything hinged on that. All they had to do to stop Christianity was come up with a body. Because Christ said, I will bodily rise in three days. So if you were Rome, you ever wonder why they didn't bring a body out? Because think about after 
a couple of days, a dead body in a hot climate. I checked the weather in Jerusalem yesterday. You know what the high was? 106. So could you imagine a body that was crucified, didn't embalm, they didn't do embalming. They took it real quickly, threw it in a tomb. All they had to do was bring an old dried up corpse out and says, here he is, folks. But he didn't. People tried to say, well, the disciples did what with the body? What was the big thing? That they stole the body. Now, let me ask you a question. If you stole the body, you as a disciple, and you stole the body, and people start to torture you towards the end of your life, how many of you would rather say, oh, whoa, time out. We lied. Y'all don't put me on that cross. Y'all don't flay me. Y'all don't throw me off this building. Y'all don't do this to me. It didn't really happen. Just let me go. They went to their deaths. They were martyred for their statements. They never changed their story. So the most powerful weapon that was gone, the rod that came out, is the gospel. Think about how the gospel has conquered the world. You know, it's it's all over the world. Yeah, we look today and we see how Muslims... Religion is spreading. People say it's the fastest spreading religion. It's the fastest spreading enforced religion in the world. You think, man, if you live in a country that's Muslim, you don't convert to Christianity, do you? If you do, what happens to you? Yeah, you're not going to be converted for long. So we, we see Christianity is still one of the fastest, strongest growing religions in the world. Uh, it's fastest growing right now in Asia. It's almost like it's made a full circle all the way around. And, and so we, we see that it is the strongest thing. Now look at verse 3. The, the Messiah is recognized and honored by his people. Now he's talking about this. He says, The people shall be willing in the day of thy power and the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning thou hast the dew of thy youth. So the, the word willing, where it says the people shall be willing, the word willing there is nabaha, and it means volunteer. So it says basically the, the, the people shall be volunteering is a good way to, to, to put it. He says, the people shall be volunteering in the day of thy power. The word power there is chahyal, and it means strength. And also kind of like the force of an army. So he he talks about your your people shall be willing or volunteers in the day of your power when people of God see and experience the victory of their Messiah. They'll be gladly willing to give themselves over to his work. You ever thought about why do you serve God? It's not like we have a wonderful uh, pay, does it? I mean, you you join the church. Hey, thank you for joining. You're now a member. If you go out and and win so many, we're going to give you a bonus and buy you a new TV. You, you, You think about, you know, but people get saved. There is a desire to serve God. Where does it come from? From the heart, yeah. Isn't it amazing how God can take somebody who is is a mean, nasty person, and when they get saved, their whole heart changes, and they have a desire to share what's happened to them, you know, and just do different things. It changes people totally. So there, there. So I guess being a saying willing or being a volunteer is a good work for it. There, we we, we give ourselves over to His work. We we. We're willing all the day of his power. And the word power, like I said, means power. Now, he says this. He says, in the beauties of holiness. So it, it, the, the word there is hadar, and it means ornament, but it also means glory. So in the glory of his holiness. So why we do these things is because we're in God. We, we know we recognize the glory of God and what he's done for us. And how he's changed us. So, Poole said this. He said, the willingness 
the most willing is such plural words here. It's frequently used. Boy said, there's no mercies or mercenaries in this battles. There's no slaves pressed into the ranks of soldiers. The army is composed of complete volunteers. You know, if we lived in a Muslim country, you're basically forced to become Muslim. Here we, we become Christians and we volunteer to serve the Lord. We volunteer to do what God tells us to do. Meyer said this, he said, Whensoever the Holy Spirit is supreme in a church, there will be a free will offering of young hearts and lives. There are no press men in our master's army, all volunteers. Offer your will to God and say you are willing to be made willing. So he, I like how he said, you know, the, that basically he says, notice how he put it. He said in a church where the Holy Spirit is what? Supreme. When the Holy Spirit is, because how many of you have ever been in a church that's been man-led and not God-led? So there's a big difference. And so he, he's pointing this out. He says that that's when you see lives changed. So we, we, we see that part there. Spurgeon said this. He, he quoted a guy named McCarlin. He said, but the reference of expression is to the army, not to its leader. The word youth here is a collective noun equivalent to young men. The host of his soldier subjects are described as a band of young warriors whom he leads in their fresh strength and countless numbers and gleaming beauty like the dew of the morning. So one comparison here is to when David was closest to God was in his younger years when he was fighting and he had these mighty men surrounding him. And, and so they fought because of David. They fought because of his leadership because they saw something in him. What did they see in David? Well, the Holy Ghost and not only that. Think about this. When David was chosen, remember when Samuel showed up at his house and he looked and he said, his older brother come out and he said, now there's somebody who could be king. What did God tell him? He said, you're looking on the outside like men. He said, but I look at their heart. David had a heart like God. When he was younger, that heart showed a lot. So it, 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 it's, a, it's a picture of that, but you think about how God changes people. Is age a requirement in the church? No, it's just what the Holy Spirit does. You know. So in verse 4, though, he, he goes a little different. He says, The Lord has sworn and will not repent Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, the, the word repent there, a better word is relent. So the Lord has sworn and not relent because it most means the same things. This, the statement puts the most solemn and, and strong context possible. God has made a, an oath and he'll never change this oath. It's basically a good way to say it. So he said, I'm going to make you a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Who was Melchizedek? He was a high priest. In Genesis chapter 14 is the story of when Lot and a bunch of people have been captured and Abram or Abraham and a bunch of other guys go after them. They get them and they bring them back. Remember Abraham take all, took all of his young men and they went and they recaptured. And on the way back, they come by Salem. Does anybody know where Salem's at? Massachusetts. <laughs> Massachusetts. All right. <laughs> well, yeah, it is there. But uh, the Salem mentioned in Genesis chapter 14 is the ancient name for Jerusalem. So when they come to where Jerusalem stands today, or Jerusalem was in Jesus' time, or David's time, they come and out comes the king of Salem. His name is Melchizedek. Not only is he king of Salem, but he is also the high priest of Salem, and he worshiped God. 
So he was a high priest and a king. So what makes it so important is to understand that he's been the only one like that. So God said, I'm going to make you a priest king in the order of Melchizedek. Was David made a priest king? The next king that come along after David was who? His son Solomon. Now everybody knows Solomon's problem. He had a lot of wives. Yeah. Way too many. When you had 300 and something wives plus of the, that many concubines, you got a problem. The Bible says that they led, all him, led him away from God in sin. So he definitely was not a priest king. The king right after that was Rehoboam, Solomon's son. He split the kingdom. So he definitely was not that. After that, you had good, bad, good, bad, good, bad. But you never had one that took this ability. So God's not talking. He has to, he's talking about Jesus. He says, I've made you this, this order. I'm, I've sworn to it, and I'm not going to change my mind. McLaren said, God, as it were, his pledges is his own name which is the fullness of unchanging power to the fulfillment of the word. This is an irrevocable, can't change it, is how opponent decree, and it's made still more impressive by the added insurance. So what makes it such great is God said, I'm doing this. I'm swearing by myself on my own name that I'll never change it. You are a priest forever. You know, you will be the king forever. You know, he's, he's talking about the Messiah here. You know, Genesis brief account in chapter 14, it don't tell us a lot about Melchizedek, but we know a little bit about him. We know that he was not merely a worshiper of God. He was the, 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 tile, the high priest. He blessed Abraham. What did Abraham do to him? Remember, Melchizedek comes out. He offers him something, some refreshments. Abraham turns around and gives him an offering. The guys that are with him, the kings from these other cities that are with him, he don't give them nothing. But Melchizedek shows up for no reason. Abraham gives him a tithe of 10% of everything that was taken. You know, so we, we see that when... We don't know why. It doesn't tell us why. Other than Abraham saw something there. Yeah. You know, he, 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 believed, he, he gave him, in, in chapter 14, verse 20, tells us this. Let me read 18 through 20 right quick. Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine. And he was the priest of the most high God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of the heavens and the earth. And best be, blessed be the Most High God, which has delivered thine enemies unto thy hand. And it says that he gave him a tithe of all. Now, Melchizedek didn't, it doesn't say that he knew what was happening. But he came out, he blessed Abraham, he blessed God, and Abraham gave it doesn't tell us who his fathers were, you know, or anything about them. Uh, there's no genealogy. No, genealogy. There we go. Thank you. I knew it was something like that. But there's no genealogy given to Melchizedek. He appears briefly here, and then he appears in the New Testament. He and in the Psalms here, he says, "You're a priest forever." With this oath, God revealed that there is, there is another priesthood apart from the, the priestly order of Abraham, of, of Aaron, that came later. Because notice, Aaron and Moses are not in Jesus' lineage, but David is. So God said, I'm going to make you this priest forever. So if you think about it, the only way Jesus could be priest and do the things that he did as if someone made him priest. Who made Aaron priest? And Moses. Who gave him that job? God. 
So there's only one person or one being that could give the job of priest to an individual. We know that there were those that tried to take the high priest job, tried to say that they were just as good as Moses and Aaron, and what did God do to them? What did God do to Korah? He opened up the ground, swallowed the whole family. When God established something, he meant for it to be established. So he's established Christ as a priest, not only a priest, but a king. So it's an important, so important a thought. In Hebrews, it's referred to five times about Jesus. Five times in the book of Hebrews talks about Christ being a, a, the priest or in the same order as Melchizedek's. And it's in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 6. It's in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 10, chapter 6, verse 20, chapter 7, verse 17, and, and verse 21 of chapter 7. So we see each one of these. It emphasizes this. So it talks about like he, that the Messiah served in chapter 20, 6, 20, talks about that Jesus serves now and forever as a living, acting high priest for his people. But think about something. The high priest of Aaron's line offered sacrifices daily. So their sacrifice was never good enough. The priest in the order of Melchizedek, Jesus offered how many sacrifices? One. A perfect sacrifice. It was accepted and that's all that's ever needed to be. That one sacrifice. So, I, I like what Horn said this. He said, the priesthood is not like that of Aaron, figurative and successive and transient, but real and effective, effective and fixed and unchangeable. You think about in Aaron's line, there were priests who were good high priests, just like the kings, and there were priests who weren't so good at high priests. But in Jesus, you only have the one. Verse 5, the Messiah contends with the kings of the nations. So he, he said this. First he says, you're going to sit at the right hand of God until your enemies are brought under control. He says, he's going to send out your, your, your rod to, to, and strength out of Zion to rule. He says, the people are going to be willing to follow you and worship you and, and do all this. And in verse 4, he says, you're going to be a priest to him and a king. And in verse 5, he says, the Lord at thy right hand shall strike through the kings in the days of his wrath. So the Messiah is going to contend with the kings of the nations. You know, the Lord is at your right hand. It shows the strength and the favor of the Messiah because of where he sits. The second part there, McLaren said this. He said, the second part of the song carries the king into the battlefield. He comes forth from the throne where he sat at Jehovah's right hand and now Jehovah stands at his right hand. So you think when Christ comes back, when he bodily comes back and steps foot on the earth, what will happen then? Yeah, this is going to be at the end of the tribulation period. We come back with him. He comes back leading an army. Who does the fighting though? He does. We just we just get come along for the ride. Yeah, observers. He's doing it all. He's gonna. He he don't need us. He's taking care of all of it. So he's gonna. He he'll handle all the fighting. He'll be doing it all. And it's not like he's gonna pull out this sword and just start slaying them left and right. He just you know, all he's got to do is speak. You ever wonder why people go against Christ? go against God think about how power I mean God spoke the world into existence and people say I, I've heard people say well you just wait you know if I get I'm going to tell him a thing or two yeah <laughs> yeah he'll tell him a thing or two you're Lord you're Christ you was right I was wrong <laughs> yeah so uh, you know 
This is okay. The Lord shall at the right hand shall strike the kings through the day of His wrath. This, let me let me tell you what this word wrath is. F A P H. All right. It means anger, but it also means nostril and nose. When a animal gets angry like a bull or something, you know, they, they blow out their nose. How do you know they're angry? They'll make a noise. So that kind of fits. You know, he, he, the, he, the Lord, he, he's going to come after because he's with his anger or with his wrath. And uh, he talks about how the, the breath of the Lord can do all kinds of things. What brought Adam to life? God's breath when he breathed into what? His nostrils. So, and so, so he he breathed, he breathed into his his wrath there. You know. And also, going to the book book of uh, Proverbs, there's a lot of talking about ringing of the nose. So, when you ring somebody's nose, if you grab it, and twist it, do you think people are happy? Kind of a word picture there for us. So it says he's gonna he's gonna execute the kings. Basically, you, you think, what does he do to the Antichrist and Satan? Yeah. He, put, yeah, he puts him in, you know, Satan's bound for a thousand years. The Antichrist and the false prophet are tossed into the lake of fire where, where they're basically tortured for the for the rest of eternity. Um and what gets me is in that, that time, who wraps up Satan? Who, who, who binds them? It's not even Jesus. He don't have to. Michael does it. You know, so what we see, you know, if God wanted to get rid of them, he could have got rid of them right then. But we also know that after Jesus' reign, how long is Jesus going to reign for? A thousand years. He's not going to have any opposition. The Bible tells us in the book of Isaiah, when we finally get to that, that, that there'll come a time during the millennial reign that a child shall live to be the age of 100. At 100, if they don't accept Christ as their Savior, basically they're going to die. So somewhere along the line in the millennial reign, without Satan interfering with anything, people are going to start to reject God. Why do you think that would be? Given a choice, we're still, human beings are still deceptively wicked. We choose the wrong things majority of the time. Now, those of us that are saved, we're fine. We're still good. It's going to be those that are born during the millennial reign because there will be people born. There will be people that, that make it through the tribulation period. They'll be the ones having children. They're going to be repopulating the earth. Then Satan's going to be loosed. After the thousand years, he comes back and deceives the nations. Then they are going to come back against Christ. And that's when he finally puts an end to all of it. They'll be completely destroyed. Then after that comes the great white throne of judgment. The great white throne of judgment. Remember what I've told you about it many times. Everybody gets judged on their works. Since they're going to open up the Bible. So this priest king, he is the ruler so thereby, by law, he has the right to, to, to judge. He's been the priest that, by law, he knows what sacrifice that they've accepted. He will judge them, and they'll be judged the way many people want to be judged, by their works. How many people think they're going to stand? Well, I've done good. I didn't do that bad. The Bible says if their name is not found in the book of life, the Lamb's book of life, what happens to them? You know, they're, they're cast into hell, into the lake of fire for eternity. So when he talks about that, that with his right hand, he will strike the kings in the day of his wrath, it, the wrath is because of the rejection. He's more angry, I think, that they rejected him than anything. Given an opportunity, you still chose opposite. Verse 6 and 7, he's going to judge all the nations. And he shall judge among the heathen, and he shall fill the places with dead bodies and he shall wound the heads over many countries 
he shall drink of the brook in the way, and therefore he shall lift up the head. So th this here is a, is a good picture of Armageddon. Revelation chapter 16, verse 16 and 19, 11 through 21, talk about Armageddon. Let me, let me, let me share this, read these verses with you. 16, 16 says, He shall gather them together in a place in the Hebrew called tongue, Armageddon. Verse 19, chapter 19, 11 through 21 says, And I saw heaven open up, behold the white horse, and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as flames of fire, and on his heads were many crowns. He had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed in the vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that it would be he would smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. He treaded the wine presses of fierceness and wrath of the Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh the name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying, And all the fowls of the midst of the heavens come, gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of the kings, and the flesh of captains, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of them that sit on them, and flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken and with him a false prophet that wrought the miracles before him, which deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshiped his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone and the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which the sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. Here's a picture of a battle. It's very descriptive as the way John describes it because the way he describes this battle would be a battle of an army that's completely decimated. See, when an army was decimated in those days, they didn't get out and bury the people quickly. The animals did most of the work. And so that's why he talks about, and so the people would understand this as John wrote this and as they read it, there's going to be a big army and Christ is going to be victorious. Now it talks about, he, he uses one weapon, which is his, the tongue, his sword. So all he has to do is, you said, speak and it's over with. All these people that came up against him and they come and, and, and they're destroyed, just instantly could you imagine being in that army you gotta be pretty prideful to follow something like that because here here comes, I, I like though if you listen the, the 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 army that comes with christ is dressed in white you didn't go to battle dressed in white because it would be covered in blood and dirt never says anything about those guys does it they're just on horses never says they they charge or anything like that but all these people come up against christ mark Lincoln said this he said the choice of every man is being crushed beneath his foot or being exalted to sit with him on his throne he that come overcometh reading out the book of revelation to him will i give to sit down with me on my throne even as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne so there's a choice you get to sit at the throne or you get to fall in the field and that's as simple as it's put and he tells us here this, this the, these two little verses that everybody has that choice basically Poole said when he's talking about he shall lift up the head he says, shall be delivered from all of his sorrows and suffering, exalted to the great, great glory and joy, felicity, as this phrase usually signifies, as in Psalms 3 and Jeremiah 52 and elsewhere. On the contrary, to hang the head is the significant of grief and shame and lamentations. So when it talks about they, 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 they he shall wound the heads of many, basically they'll, that, that's 
is showing grief. He shall drink of the brook in the way, and therefore she shall lift up the head. So when Christ is victorious, to drink of the brook meant that you were victorious. You didn't have to worry about being attacked. So Psalms 110 shows our, our, our Savior and how he overcomes. Like I said, it's a very quoted psalm. It's the most quoted in that one section of verse is very well quoted. And it's amazing how it shows how Christ is. The other psalm I want to look at, we're going to talk about it just briefly, is Psalm 38. And it, it gives us a different picture. They're two totally different psalms. Here you have a psalm of, of war, victory, and overcoming, and showing what Christ shall do. And in Psalm 38, it, it's the, 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 a good way to describe it is a six sinner's only hope. Let's flip over to it right quick. We'll get into it just a little bit. This is another one by David. Here's how we know that when David wrote Psalms 110, he's not writing about himself. Because this psalm, Psalm 38, he writes many believes when he's older. Listen to how it starts off. It's called a Psalm of David to bring to remembrance. He says, O Lord, rebuke me not in thy wrath, neither chastise me in thy hot displeasure. For thine arrows stick fast to me, and thy hand presses me sore. There is no soundness in my flesh because of thine anger. Neither is there any rest in my bones because of my sin. See how you can tell two totally different subjects here? 110 is talking about somebody who sits at the right hand of, of God. And this one says, I'm in trouble because I'm a sinner. Yeah, have mercy on me because I'm a sinner. I'm sick because I know the reason why I'm a sinner. Does that sound like somebody who got the chance to sit at the right hand of the Father? Or does it sound like most of us? You know, God forgive me. I, I've got problems. I, uh, I, I've been pierced by God's displeasure. Anybody ever felt that way sometimes? You know, Lord, I feel like everything's falling apart. You must be mad at me. And that's kind of what he says. He says, don't rebuke me in your wrath. You know, he, he, he's under that sense of God's displeasure. He cries out. He, he, he's following a very wise path here. He, he does the exact thing. If you've got sin in your life, what's the best thing to do? Repent, cry out to God. David does that. Like I said, a lot of people tried to say this had to be early. A lot of people first try to say this had to happen after Bathsheba. But the, the way he's talking here is there's more going on than, than then. We know there's the psalm where he, he cries out for forgiveness of that. But this isn't it. Uh, Spurgeon says, he says, the angers of others I can bear is what David's saying here, but not yours. So he's pleading to him. Look, look what he says in, in, in that verse 3 through 5. He says, There's no soundness in my flesh because of thine anger. Neither is there any rest in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities are gone over my head as a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and are corrupt because of my foolishness. So when he, he's talking about this... Uh, he, he says, I've made a lot of bad mistakes. So like I said, a lot of people believed as he, he was in that last part of his life when he couldn't get warmth. Remember, he, he had another woman who caused problems for David's family later on. He had a young lady came, and she slept with him at night. They didn't have relations, but she slept with him to try to keep him warm because he could never get warm. So he was constantly hurting. He was constantly in pain. And you, you know, sometimes when you're sick, you start looking back. You start saying, God, I had so many chances. You ever done that in your life? Just look back and say, I had so many chances that, man, I blew it. If I'd have done better, maybe things had turned out different. 
That's kind of what David's saying here. And, and, and when he describes this, he says, my iniquities are over my head. This is a heavy burden. I can't handle it. It's, it's more than I can lift. But then I like how he puts it. He says, not only that, he says, but my wounds, he says, my wounds stink and are corrupt. One translation put it like this. He says, my wounds are, are foul and festering. And you think, what does sin left unrepented in your life do? It festers and it gets worse. How many of you ever told a lie? What usually happens when you tell one lie? You got to tell another one to cover up that one lie. Before long, you're just covered in a bunch of them. And it's the same way with sin. You get into one sin. One sin, you know, think about people say, well, it's just a small sin. It's not hurting nobody. But you know it's a sin and it continues to fester. It continues to grow. Sin left alone, unrepented, becomes horrible. It starts to affect yourself. You ever had a sin in your life? You come to church, you're like, well, I'm good, I'm fine. There's nothing that wrong with it. But before long, coming to church doesn't have the joy. It doesn't have the happiness. Things aren't like they used to be. And usually when you start to lose your joy and your happiness, before long, and not only does it affect church, but it affects home, it affects everything about you. So David said, I've got a problem and it stinks and I can't do nothing about it. I'm troubled, he says in verse 6. I'm bowed down greatly. I go mourning all the day long. This psalm that he has, he talks about it all the way through verse 8, his troubles, the problems. He says, my my loins are filled with loathsome disease. There's no soundness in my flesh. I'm feeble, sore, broken. I've roared by reason of disquietness in my heart. So, boy, David has having some problems. But the best thing he's doing is he's crying out to the one who can fix them. He went to the right doctor. You know, he, he found somebody who, who knew exactly what the problem was. Yeah, he, he In verses 9 and 10, I'm just going to give you the brief overline. He has nothing to hide in his misery about it. Now, look at verse 11. He, he's talked about all these times. He's talking about how bad it is. He says, my lovers and my friends stand aloof from my sore. My kinsmen stand far off. He's left alone. David was not a man who enjoyed being alone. He surrounded himself with people. And here he says, now my sin's so bad, this thing's so horrible, everybody's left me alone. In his older age, his kids didn't want to have nothing to do with them because he made wrong choices. David could have stood up, but instead he didn't. Remember, when Absalom, the son he loved the most, tried to take the nation away from him, David should have done something about it, but he didn't. And the rest of the kids. It all started back when David's daughter was basically raped. And instead of doing anything about it, David didn't because it was one of his kids. He paid the price for it. Absalom turned against them. The rest of the children almost turned against them. There became problems in the house. talks about all of his desire he says you know that he says they also seek after my life lay snares for me and they seek my hurt and speak mischievous things and deceits all the day long but I as a deaf man heard not I was dumb that a man that opened not his mouth thus I was a man that heareth not and whose mouth was reproved Harry that those verses there he's talking about his kids he didn't listen to what was going on he let it go because of the sin in his life I'm going to close with the last couple of verses here. As he cries out in verse 21, he says, Forsake me not, O Lord my God, be not far off from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord my salvation. He cries out, but he has a repentant heart. 
See, a lot, one of the difference in a lot of people is what happens when you realize there's sin in your life. Let me give you two instances right quick, and we'll close with these. Then we'll have a prayer request. Two men. Both of them denied Jesus Christ. Both of them act sorry. One of them's in hell, one of them's not. 